Welcome to Tibet Talks, a podcast series from the International Campaign for Tibet. You are about to hear the recording of a live conversation with Dr. Stefan Rechschaffen on October 8th, 2020. We hope you enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Pleasure to I'm Denji Gyatso with uh, International Campaign for Tibet. Welcome again to Tibet Talks, where we bring live conversations on Tibet with engaging thinkers, leaders, activists, and artists. Last week, you heard our discussion with scholar Adrian Zenz and his latest report, Xinjiang's System of Militarized Vocational Training Comes to Tibet, which was a groundbreaking study revealing a mass coerced labor program that has enlisted more than half a million rural Tibetans in just seven months. Um, and we heard how the Chinese government is trying to eliminate Tibet's unique and ancient culture. And that uh, talk is available uh, on our website at safetibet.org slash live as part of our past programs. But today for our discussion, we will focus on learning more about the wisdom derived from Tibetan teachings and Tibetan culture and their meaning and relevance for the world today. Our guest speaker is a dedicated practitioner of Tibetan Buddhism, a nationally recognized holistic doctor and co-founder of the Omega Institute and founder of the Blue Spirit in Costa Rica. So please join me to welcome Dr. Uh, Stefan Rexhafen. He is an old friend of the Tibetan people and a long supporter of ICT. Welcome, Stefan, to uh, Tibet Talks. Thank, Thank you, you very much for joining us today. I'd also like to invite ICT President Matteo Makachi to join as moderator for our conversation today. Hi, Matteo. Hello, Good thank you. you. Hello, Stefan. Yeah. Hello, Matteo. And for our audience listening online, um, we will take questions at the end of the conversation. So um, please make note of your questions and you can post them directly either on the Facebook comment section or you can email them to us at comments at safetibet.org. So with that, I'll hand it over to you, Matteo. Thank you. Thank you very much, Tencho, and thank you, Stefan, for joining us. Um, My pleasure. With Stefan, we have known each other for, for a few years now, but as uh, Tencho mentioned, uh, he has been long uh, associated with uh, you know, both the Tibetan people and with the ICT. So uh, we thank you for you know, your support uh, and for being with us for so many years. Um, so I know you quite well, but our audience, I think, need to know a little bit more uh, about your work over many, many years and so i would like to start uh, uh, with you sharing uh, what is your you know first memory learning about tibet uh, when did you get involved uh, in in the cause uh, and most importantly also what inspired you to do so thank you Matteo, and, and wonderful to be here with you uh, as we have spent a lot of time talking you know some of my story and i yours as a child, I knew essentially nothing about Tibet. Growing up, um, second generation in the United States, and uh, our family uh, relatives had moved from, from Europe. Um, but 
I think early on, as I started to explore the world beyond just where I live, uh, I came across, as many people, the, the book by James Hilton, Lost Horizon, which first made me wonder a little bit about what is this magical place. I remember seeing some movies and so on, and I even then started to hear the more magical side of uh, books by Talbot Mundi, who of India, that, that, that started to pique my interest. And then as I went, as my life moved beyond my uh, birth home to um, going to college and then to medical school, uh, I had already begun to be involved in meditation. For Zen meditation, uh, although uh, early in my years there, I was exposed to uh, and had various sittings with him at that time. Then I remember as I was in medical school, one of the professors came up to me and said, I've been watching you and thought that maybe you'd like to work abroad. And it was not exactly a thought on my mind, but when she said, where would you like to go? Mm -hmm. uh, and she gave me the choices. I immediately chose India and found myself working 8,000 8, feet up in the, in the foothills of uh, the Himalayas. And, and there I became directly exposed to many of the monks who had crossed the border. There was in a town called Musuri, which I've since visited numerous times. And there was a uh, refugee center, more of a school called Happy Valley. And so I became a doctor there, it was in the end of my medical school, I became a doctor that would go and sit the school, do exams of the children, and as well, and there were many monks who had suffered the journey across the mountains. And you could see and I could experience the physical toll that it had taken upon them between uh, tuberculosis, diabetes, varying types of in conditions, uh, we had a whole area within the hospital that had many of the Tibetan monks. And what most struck me during that time was the degree to which uh, the monks were um, the monks were certainly I could feel the the, uh, the difficulties they had gone through, yet the equanimity, the degree to which they remained of good mood, of good humor, of good presence. Mm. And it had really struck me. There was very little feeling of one could experience, one could feel the hardship they had been through, but it did not penetrate into their inner spirit. And for me, that was really a profound experience to understand that really as, as one explores the inner life more deeply, it allows one to handle essentially what the uh, difficulties of life have to offer. So that to me is really where it began. And, and uh, I came back to the States after that. And uh, years later, got involved with setting up Omega Institute, where we had many Tibetan teachers who would come. I lived not far from Bob Thurman, and I was living up in Woodstock. So there was many exposures to many of the of the teachers, but my focus at that time was really all of the different uh, spiritual traditions. It's only, I would say, much later in my life 
where I have really now come to focus on an actual Tibetan practice within my life and my wife's life. Yes. And uh, so that's very enlightening, I think. And uh, what I wanted to ask you is that, I mean, that was your personal exposure also to Tibetan philosophy. And, uh, you know, we'll get to that point later. You're now in Costa Rica and you have your own center there where you do, you know, many wonderful programs. Uh, so there is that personal aspect of, you know, the, the philosophy that inspired and how does that interconnect with your work. But also at some point you decided to become more involved also with ICT, you know, taking, you know, a stance uh, with, with an organization that was supporting the rights. So when that happened and what, you know, sparked your interest in becoming also actively involved with our work? Well, what, what happens, Matteo, as, as you know, is, is in our world right now, which is the attempt to homogenize everything, we have great traditions that have really been battered from indigenous people from all over the world. So one has this concern that people have lived a balanced, healthy, meaningful life and yet are being uh, just destroyed around the world. I happen to feel that in, at this point in, in what's happening in the world, two of the sort of great indigenous traditions, one being the Tibetans and the other being, which, and, and truly one of the things that as a spiritual practice, one of the things that's so important for Tibetan practice is it really comes out of the shamanic and then mixes with the Buddhist. So that's where it stands quite differently than simply uh, the Buddhist practitioners. Um, but also feeling that from the shamanic, here we live in Costa Rica, not far from uh, some of the shamanic work that's happened down in South America and in the Amazon and so on. And so my belief is that the diaspora of this, what was hidden, the, these hidden teachings having come to the fore is really something that needs to be preserved. And with that is the very precious, uh, both teachings of the Tibetans, but the Tibetan people themselves. So one cannot just look at a teaching and say, okay, well, now we have the teachings without recognizing that it's the very people that hold that teaching. And so when I've been exposed to Tibetans over the years, recognizing the hardships that they've gone through and continue to go through, uh, specifically with the Chinese, but the very difficulties of it, 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 it I, I consider both the Tibetan teachings but the Tibetan people part of the treasure of And if we do not really honor those who've come before us and really understood the depth of what living on this planet is about. That's really the key. And that's why I also feel for the, the shamans coming out of uh, the Amazon, we don't honor that we're part of this earth, that uh, nature that's being destroyed, that uh, uh, practices that people have been doing, the customs that people have been living are really part of what makes the richness of, of our life on the planet. So to me, this is why I was drawn. And as you know, to ET, I really honor that work. It's so important at this time because uh, our world is lost if everything just becomes vanilla and homogenized. 
all we're doing is being on Facebook and Google. It's not quite right. Yeah. Now, thank you for articulating this so well. Um, I think many of our members, many of our viewers probably share what you think, but there is a, a world outside which is, you know, certainly appreciating Tibetan culture, Tibetan teachings. You know, there is this movement around mindfulness, which is, you know, increasingly, you know, having, reaching many, many, many people. But I think what you say that, you know, you cannot just take, you know, advantage of the teaching without realizing where they're coming from. What is the people? What is the culture behind that? And what needs to be done to be, you know, to preserve them as they need to be preserved them? Because uh, as you know, it's not the same, uh, you know, to live in, you know, in a, in a society which is, you know, run in the way we live, which is, you know, geared towards, you know, performance and competition and other cultures which value other things. And I think even your choice of opening your center in Costa Rica somehow reflects that, right? And how your practice is informed by that philosophy that you need to stay true uh, to the teachings, not only in your inner world, but as much as we can also in, an, in our outer world, the way we live in, in society. And so that I think would be interesting for people to hear also what, you know, how these teachings have also inspired your practice and your choices. Well, it, well it's interesting. I just, one thing about my being here in Costa Rica, it is the, uh, what I consider the greenest country in the Western hemisphere at this point. And when I look around the world, and I look at those countries that are able to hold deeper values that honor humans in their relationship with the nature around, in their relationship with the animals, the plants, and really living in balance. What one sees is it's generally speaking in the smaller countries. It's Costa Rica, it's Iceland, it's Bhutan, it's New Zealand. It's these countries where there still seems to be humans understanding their relationship with each other, but the wider world. So for me, um, one of the things that I've seen that happens in our culture, and why one, one reason we're looking at this very differently here in spirit in terms of what we offer, is when I was involved in starting Omega, we had a lot of programs always in yoga, etc. And we, to use mindfulness as a good example, it's an extremely important practice. But mindfulness really, to me, is just the first stage. It's simply the stage of learning let the mind pay attention, how to develop a quiet inner focus. The same with yoga. Yoga was called the eight limbs of yoga coming from India. But what's happened is yoga has moved to just being yoga asanas and position where people do these exercises just seen as a form of exercise. So what we tend to do is we tend to strip from the whole one little part. And so it's really important that we have people who are the real wisdom holders who understand that this part, yes, is necessary to get to the whole, but one doesn't stop. One doesn't stop with just one part. So it's important to the whole, and this is what I feel represented by the Tibetan people. There's a quality. When I meet 
indigenous people or even people who have lived on the land here in Costa Rica, they may not have a deep spiritual sense, but one feels a difference in it. 70 years ago in Costa Rica, uh, the army was abolished. It's the only country in the Western Hemisphere with no standing army. One of the things I like to say when people come here is that the reason they feel so good in our environment is because the people here feel undefended. There's not that same kind of reaction. I mean, to be quite honest, when I go into Western countries and land in an airport, especially these days coming back into the United States, there's an immediate kind of holding one has to be ready for, as opposed to just relaxing. So we live at attention. We don't live with a deeper relaxation. When I meet people from Tibet, when I meet people from these more connected to nature cultures, connected to spirit cultures, one can really feel a more open heart. One can feel a more open being than one where it's just one is holding oneself tight, almost militaristic. And so it's necessary that we preserve this. Our world will not survive with it. In the same way we need to preserve nature, we need to preserve this inner nature that still does exist in many cultures, in Tibet being one of the primary. Yeah. So you are, as we have mentioned, you are a medical doctor and yeah. uh, you have been working many years. So what are the aspects of you know, Tibetan philosophy or culture that have informed your practice? How have you integrated some of those teachings that you mentioned in your practice? Well, it's interesting. I can't say when I, when I was first in, um, uh, in India and then uh, visited there, and then at some point we had Tibetan medical doctors coming and teaching right. uh, at Omega uh, way back. So I started to learn and use some of those but I also began to understand that it was an art form that I was never going to fully grasp. And so I actually can't say that I use that very much. However, what inspired me into much of the work that I'm doing right now is to start to recognize how many of the old uh, Tibetan lamas won reads about uh, teachers like Patrul Rinpoche, who would live up high in the Himalayas, would live with very, very little, very sparse, what their routine of was eating, a lot of fasting and so on. What you see is that people live longer and live healthier. I happen to live in one of the places here in Costa Rica where um, there are five places that are the blue zones in the world where there's about a tenfold increase of the number of people living over gold. So there are some ways in which people live longer. And I actually think that, for instance, even to just talk for a moment about COVID right now, one of the things about COVID is, is we are concerned about COVID as people are older. And I actually think there's a problem with that kind of thinking because I'm interested in biological age, not chronological age. And the difference there is that people are aging quicker. And as a result of that aging quicker, they're developing chronic diseases. It's the aging and the chronic diseases that come from eating too much sugar, not exercising, not fasting, 
not doing the types of things, the obesity that starts to develop, uh, those are things that's affecting people all over the world. And I'm concerned about that even for some Tibetans that I meet who have sort of gotten brought into Western culture. People come into Western culture. I can see it here in Costa Rica already when I go to stores. What used to be all fresh vegetables and healthy foods, we now see all the processed foods and we see all everything adding sugar into everything. These are the things that are no longer creating health. So austerities actually create health. I'm a real student of evolution and now of nature in terms of what creates longevity in nature because we consider that if a human lives to be 100 years old, that's really, really good, especially if they stay healthy. I read not long ago about a woman at 113, the longest living woman in um, Spain who already had COVID and went through it just fine. Because she didn't get to 113 not being healthy. Yeah. She's somebody who's really lived quite healthy. When you look at her and you hear her speak, she's articulate and so on. So when we look at what it is that creates biological health, and, and I say people who live to 100, there are certain trees on the planet right now that are, that are 10,000 years old. So trees can live a hundred, hundred year lifetime. So how is it they never move? I mean, at least from the place where they're standing. And so we have a lot to learn from nature. One of the things that nature teaches is that for evolution to evolve, continue. Every species has gone through periods of fasting. Periods where there's not enough rain for the tree, there's not enough food for the animals. So when you go into fasting, what actually happens in animal species is they turn off the aging process, which is really quite interesting. Why do they turn off the aging process? Because if there's not enough food, the species can't survive because you stop procreating when, when, there's, when there's famine. So at that point, aging stops. So we can actually start to turn off the aging process. They're still aging but not at a fast rate, not at an unhealthy rate. So there's a lot that can be learned for that. And I think many Tibetans, those who lived in the austerities of living where they lived, went through that and learned a lot about it. And there's great teaching that comes from it. And so that's the kind of thing that we don't want to discard. That's what we need to learn because our world is rapidly becoming the obesity rates in the world, the chronic disease rates, for the first time in the United States over the last few years, um, life expectancy in, throughout the Western uh, countries has started to decline. That's the first time in 100 years. So we're starting to see the effects of what we've been doing. And yet, there's teachings out there that we could use to change the course of it. Thank you. Thank you, Stefan. And... You have talked already about this, but I just want to mention to our viewers that you run a longevity program at Blue Spirit. So if people want to learn more how this works and, you know, I think what you said was, you know, was very inspiring when I heard it, you know, the first time a couple of years ago, but it's still very, very relevant. And I think it just gives, uh, 
you know, people a different perspective on how in general to try to run your life and in the end to take care of your health. And I think at this moment, people are very concerned everywhere in the world, especially in the United States about their health. You know, we are all, uh, you know, probably a little bit stressed out, scared, you know, what can happen to any of us. We hear also that it's not only, as you said, the, the age, but the, how healthy you are and how you can manage, you know, the, this threat posed now by the coronavirus. So I know that you also, uh, have some advice, you know, for your, you know, patients, for people who get in touch with you. And if you would be so kind to share also with our audience, you know, how to strengthen your health, this critical time that we are all going through. Absolutely. I, I think that there's no question that COVID is a very serious disease and the virus can be very strong. And uh, we're seeing that around the world. Now, one of the things that is most important is we're seeing it mostly affect those people who are already in some way compromised and not healthy. And what I look at, just a little biological sense of this, what I look at is mitochondrial health. And so for people who don't know what mitochondria is, mitochondria, every cell in your body has between 500 and 4,000 mitochondria. They're your little battery packs in the body. And so what's important about mitochondria is that they need to deal with all life, which is keep us protected inside the cell and we'll give you energy. It's sort of like your ATM machine. When you need some money, you put in your card, you get some money out. So every time I move my arm and make a muscle, there are millions of mitochondria that are feeding all of the, what's called ATP, the equivalent for us of dollars, ATP is a coin of the realm by itself. Now, why is this important? Because as we age, our mitochondrial function diminishes. If we can keep it healthy. Now, 99% of the oxygen that you breathe goes to the mitochondria. I often say to people, where does the oxygen you breathe? Where does it go? What's it for? Is it relative to blood? It ultimately goes to the mitochondria that take the oxygen, the electrons on it, and so on to produce the eight. If we don't stay in good shape, in good health, our mitochondrial function diminishes, and we start to, instead of being what's called aerobic, using oxygen for energy, we become anaerobic. What are the things that lead to that? Too much sugar, developing varying chronic diseases, not exercising enough. COVID is an oxygen deprivation disease. Yes, there's a virus, but those who are affected are the ones who don't have the exercise, the right diet, and all of these issues. So if one keeps oneself healthy, true, you see, and there are two issues here. One is the exposure to it. And the other part of the issue is you see the dose amount. So, for instance, we know that many of our healthcare workers throughout the world have been severely affected by this virus because what they've been in the hospital situation exposed to large dose. So, 
And that's why social distancing is important, all of these sorts of things, so that if one is going to contract it, hopefully it's a low dose. But if it's a low dose, there are many things one can do with, to prevent what happens on a serious level. One is vitamin C. One is vitamin D. Um, there are, taking zinc, being in good exercise, not overeating, making sure that one is as healthy as can be with all of these things. Another thing that I've just known, the reason I mentioned mitochondria, there's a product on the market called Niagen that I've used for years, and it is specifically for mitochondrial health. And now they've done a study on this uh, around the world showing that for people who develop mild cases of COVID before it gets major, their, their time through it is six days versus the average nine days because one starts to have the mitochondria pick up the strength to really come through with this. So I do believe that we're not paying enough attention to what can we do if we are affected by it. What can we do to prevent it? So every day this morning, I had my extra vitamin C, my extra D, my extra zinc, all of my supplement, and my niagara. So there are many things that one can do. My patients on those to people who might be interested. Uh, I'm not a specialist in terms of a viral specialist and so on, but I do know from years ago having uh, invited Linus Pauling to a program that I did at Omega, and he was so in favor of the vitamin C. To this day, I have no question that these are the kinds of things that are in the preventive realm. So I'm looking at prevention. When it comes to the major treatment, if you have serious illness, I think I'm, no, I'm certainly less knowledgeable than the experts. My whole focus is what can we do to decrease the risk that we're going to be that's what we're all really interested in. Yes, thank you. And I think it fits very well with your you know, general philosophy and approach to life that you have been describing and how you know, meeting Tibetan teachings, Tibetan culture, and other you know, teachings that you have experienced in your life has also informed your, your approach to medicine, which I think you know, many people would value because sometimes even with doctors, you know, you get a diagnosis, you get the cure, but you don't look at the cause, you know, what created the problem. And I think there's a, an understanding that this holistic approach is something, you know, positive for everybody. So thank you for, for sharing that. I'm sure people will appreciate. And uh, if Tencho is uh, online, we can also check if we have any comments or questions from our viewers or if they sent via email and we can continue a little bit the conversation yes Matteo, thank you stefan very very interesting and for sharing all of that um, we do have a couple of questions so i could uh, first begin with um, kareen lemery who's watching on um, facebook has asked can learning Tibetan be a way to share Tibet and Tibetan culture? I think she says it means um, if learning Tibetan language could help promote Tibetan culture. Any thoughts on that? Um, 
I, I'm not the, the best to do that. I'm a terrible linguist. Here I live in Costa Rica, and I'm and I'm studying seven years. I'm still studying Spanish, and I'm not even trying to learn Tibetan, um, just because I don't uh, I don't think it would be my one of my easy things to do. But I imagine the answer is yes. I I, I think certainly one of the things. Um, I uh, am a student of uh, Sukhmi Rinpoche, and one of the things I really understand when I do uh, meditation uh, uh, programs with him, uh, he has a wonderful translator, Adam Kane, and many times he will need to speak in Tibetan so that Adam can translate it, not because Sukhmi doesn't, his English is extremely good. But as he'll say, there are certain words in Tibetan which really are not easily translatable. And part of that is because it's like a slightly different understanding. And it's, it, I say slightly, but it's a profoundly different understanding of consciousness, of what that means, of what awareness means, of what uh, inner practice is about. And it really is, we see things shaped by the words that we think. And yet, certain words have us thinking differently beyond what we may have grown up with in a culture. So many of us are caught in our culture and have a lot of difficulty being able to shift that. And I think the Tibetan language allows something like that. Wow. And I wish I could speak it. No, I think you're absolutely correct, Stefan. His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, always also advises um, us uh, to teach the children uh, Tibetan and to learn Tibetan language because to really understand what um, Tibetan culture has to offer, you have to understand the language because uh, there are so many uh, words, as you said, that can't be um, translated um, that you through the it, and it's there in the language. So. Yes, and I would, uh, Karine, yes to your question. Please do, the studying Tibetan does help uh, <laughs> learn more about Tibetan culture. Um, our next question uh, comes for, again from Facebook. Uh, we have a number of viewers there. Uh, from Nicola Richter, and she says, um, thank you, Stefan, for your insightful and enriching dialogue. And her question is, what advice can you give in terms of what we in the West can do to support Tibet spiritually? Well, to, so there are two questions there. One is, or at least the way I, I take that, to um, support Tibet spiritually, I think, is to really study the, the Tibetan spiritual teachings because the, it's the most precious teachings that, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most precious teachings that has come forth from humanity. And so the more people who recognize just how precious this is, is what starts to change our world around us. I mean, to be in the presence of His Holiness and just to feel with the adversities that He's faced and yet to feel the equanimity of His being. And I don't mean this just for His Holiness. He's an incredible model of that. But I find that very frequently when I'm with other, others, uh, other Tibetans. And what I as originally said, what I felt 
when I was first in meeting people from Tibet in the hospital in India. So I think that's important. I think then, obviously, the work of ICT is important because what it's doing is trying to help hold together the culture that is the people of, of Tibet. And, and we've seen too many other early cultures be snuffed out by the stampeding of modernization. And that's happening too much. And so to me, this is why I'm so appreciative of the work that both of you and others are doing at Lesson. Thank you, um, Stefan. And then now we have a question from uh, another viewer, Kunden uh, Gyatso. And um, his question is, uh, can the teaching of Buddhism help to calm down the restlessness of this century? <laughs> We would hope so. <laughs> I, you know, I, I believe, and one of the one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to the teachings of Sokni Rinpoche is that much of his teachings rest on uh, looking at the subtle body, and that's often not addressed in many of the meditation because many of the meditation practices were built at a time when or developed at a time when it was really about the inner practice of mind awareness. And we live at a time where the world is emotionally out of control. And the emotional body relates to the subtle body. And unless one is addressing how do we deal with that simultaneously, we will not change this world. We will continue to spin out of control because it's very difficult for the mind to recognize stillness when the emotions are fluttering all about or, or easily triggered. And so there's so much that needs to be balanced. And I think in previous times, there was not as, as much emotional distress as there is in the modern world. The modern world, and, and I should say it's, it's, it's uh, one of the things that I was very focused on, I wrote a book over 20 years ago called Time Shifting, which is about the speeding up, <laughs> if you read it. <laughs> okay. It's about the speeding up of time. And I wrote it way back when I thought time was going fast. It's only logarithmically, exponentially increased in speed now where it's so fast in our emotion. The mind goes very fast. We can check, 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 but our emotions really take some time. You can't be happy, sad, depressed. It doesn't work that way. Feeling inside is a different time level for the body. And so meditation practice is important because it starts to slow it down. But there's still a lot of the subtle body emotion that we need going to have a healthy world, we need to find it. That's why I continually, there's a, uh, one of my favorite books called, and, uh, recently it's called The Overstory, because it really studies the life of trees. And I look at the tree now and realize it seems so content, so at ease, and it has not moved from that spot. There's no rush. There's no, nature is not rushing. We're the crazy ones rushing. 
more and more and more, and yet steam in our rush be less satisfied. With all that we have in terms of stuff, we're incredibly less satisfied. And so unless we can get over these emotional and addictive aspects of our self, we'll never really find the, the deeper peace that we're, we're longing for deeper peace, but we're doing exactly what's not taken. Yeah, and the book is available on Amazon. And I don't know, Stephanie, if you're ready to share, but you said this is like 20 years old and you're mm-hmm. thinking about doing a, an update or another edition? I, I'm not thinking so much about that, Mate. I'm not thinking exactly <laughs> of an update, but I am thinking of a book that really looks at it from a wider perspective of not just time, but really understanding our relationship of being human in a natural world. You see, we can talk about longevity, how long each of us will live. But the way we see climate change happening and we see destructions, we're in the midst of, you know, a fifth uh, species disappearance on us. And this is really where each of the last four uh, cycles, there were loss of 80 to 90 percent of all species, plant and animal, on the planet. This is a long process. We are the first time doing that to ourselves. We, every time before it's been a meteor or change, we're the ones creating destruction too. So we need to look at it. So if we want longevity, it's very much tied in with the longevity of species and the longevity of life as it is. And if we don't recognize that we are essentially destroying ourselves. So it's not, and I see us, we can look at our diets, we can look at our habits, we're destroying ourselves individually, but we're also doing it to the And so when I teach longevity here, and for, you know, certainly for anybody who would like to come and be part of a week or stay longer for longevity programs or other amazing programs we have here at Spirit, uh, please look up peacespiritcostarica.com. Um, I like it here because it's a place of relative sanity, surrounded by nature. I, you know, I was here talking and I could hear outside. I don't know if it came through on this. I don't know that we're that loud, but we have yeah, power. Yeah. Okay, we have howling monkeys living all around here, and they live around here because we buried all of them quite natural, and so it's a haven for them. It's like their natural environment because when modernization comes, the monkeys go and they start swinging on the electric wires, and so in those areas they get electrocuted or they hit a spot where it's so so we're we need to be preserving what's around us. It's preserved all of the rest of nature because we depend on it. We are part of it. And for us not to see we're part of it, uh, just like our body, we always use the word I. I often say to people in my classes, which cell is I? We have 30 plus trillion cells in our body. Find I. We're already a community. That doesn't even include the microbiome that we rely on inside. So it's extremely important that we understand that I 
actually doesn't really exist. It's we. My body is we, and this we is part of the larger. And unless we take care of that, and I think in Tibet, there was that sense of we. There was a hierarchy. There were different roles that people play, just like my liver is different than my kidney is different than our finger. There are roles that the larger body takes on that get assigned to different areas. That's fine. But we don't have just my thumb that's going to continue living at some point. It's part of the whole. And we have to take care of the whole. That's what we must do. And I think Tibetan teachings have always been understanding. Yes, I think um, absolutely. Because growing up, the first thing we're taught as uh, for Tibetan children is um, to pray. When you pray, you pray for all sentient beings. So you pray for yourself as part of one of all sentient beings. So I think, um, you know, that's something um, very precious uh, from um, Tibetan culture. And I feel as as we meet all of our Tibetan elders, that really uh, comes through when you speak with them, when you hear from them, that they uh, look at things beyond. And this is His Holiness's message also always, the how things are interdependent and um, connected and how we need to look at the whole, as, as you have said more eloquently than I can. <laughs> no, but what you said is just so, you know, I've always felt that, and mm -hmm. just that, that care of recognizing the whole. As I remember hearing Mother Teresa say many, many years ago, the problem with uh, our human family is, is the size of the circle we call family. And so how wide can we go even beyond human to include, to include, include this all? And we have this opportunity now. It's really a time we have this opportunity when uh, we took the name Omega for Omega Institute here. de Chardin who talked about the Omega point, which was when he described the Omega point as the moment where Humanity recognizes its true interdependence, and we're still waiting for that. But it is emerging. It does have the potential to emerge. It just requires a next level waking up. And I think this is what the Tibetan teachings offer. Well, thank you. I think um, that brings us to the end of our time. Um, okay. I'm going to thank you very much for joining us, Stefan from Costa Rica. I hope I get to visit you sometime and meet you. I hope you come as well. And anyone else who wants to come, a wonderful place in nature. I, I miss the monkeys in Dharamsala. I'm more okay. used to the monkeys there. Yeah, the monkeys here are a little different. Oh, okay. <laughs> the ones They're the a ones bit louder. Here, they never come down from the trees. They never bother. So All right. Okay. Thank you. And thank you. Good to see you, bro. Good to see you. Thank you. Uh, so thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation. And um, you'll plan to join us again uh, for our next Tibet talk, will be, which will be on October 22nd. And our uh, guest on October 22nd will be Sharon Salzberg, who is the, who's the author and teacher of uh, meditation. So 
segue from um, Stefan to learning more about meditation and um, hearing from Sharon. So October 22nd, we hope you will join us. Details are posted on our website, uh, safetibet.org slash live. And um, also you will find there all our previous shows so you can um, listen to those uh, there. Um, and also for those um, of you who like podcasts, you can listen on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Um, those are available also at safetibet.org slash pod. And uh, that's it from us today. We're grateful for your interest and continued support for Tibet and the Tibetan people. And um, we'll look forward to see you next time. Uh, goodbye. Uh, Galishu. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tibet Talks. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Learn more at savetibet.org pod. To find out how you can get involved in our efforts to promote human rights and democratic freedoms for the people of Tibet, please visit savetibet.org support. Thank you and see you next time on Tibet Talks.